first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What sort of holds together our societies isn't so much the laws and the procedures and the constitution that was written by the founding fathers, blah, blah, blah. No, it's just implicit norms. It's feelings of shame. And you just realize what kind of terrible dynamic there is once actually these shameless people can rise to the top. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where we are definitely not going crazy recording for hours and hours in a very hot toddler's nursery room. Before we start today, I think it's time to do another Ask Me Anything episode. So send in your questions. Uh, this will only be open for questions for a week or two, so we don't get too overwhelmed, to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, just send your questions in text to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, um, and we will take a look at them, and I will try and answer them on our upcoming AMA. I had Rucker Bregman, the Dutch historian, day correspondent writer on the show, I think it was a few years back now. Bregman got famous. We, we talked about this in here for lashings he gave to Tucker Carlson and the assembled plutocrats of, of, of Davos. He, he can be at remarkable moments confrontational in a really interesting way. But his work that he does himself, it's not polemical, it's utopian. His last book is called Utopia for Realists. It's a favorite of mine. It's this amazing effort to throw open, as he puts it, the windows of the mind and to imagine the underpinnings of a future much better than the present. But his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, it's actually much more ambitious. It's an effort to establish that human beings, human nature is kinder, friendlier, more decent than we are given credit for, and that a new world, a very different world can be built atop that understanding. And I'm going to be honest, I am not convinced by a lot of this book, but that tension makes this conversation, I think, unusually generative. I came out of it with a lot more than I went into it. And I'm not sure even now that I believe there is one human nature. I think it's a disagreement I have with Bregman. What I think is true is humans are adaptable, possessed of many motivations, many possible natures, depending on their context. And so more and more and many and many different kinds of civilization can be built upon our nature. And if we could agree that we believed that the illusion we were going to choose was Bregman's view of our nature rather than, say, Donald Trump's view of our nature, maybe we could build something much more beautiful. There are really powerful ideas in this podcast, particularly the idea of non-complementariness. And I think that even if you 
take what Bregman is saying, which is ultimately where I come down as not an alignment of who we are, but a challenge for who we can be and his evidence is showing that we really can be this way, that it is possible, man, is there something powerful here. As always, my email is EzraKleinJoeAdVox.com. Here is Rutger Bregman. Rutger Bregman, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. So I want to start actually with a biographical aside in the book. Um, I would have described you, and, and you can tell me if I have any part of this wrong, as a, I don't know, a, a Scandinavian atheist historian who imagines techno-social democratic utopias, something like that. <laughs> but you say that your father was a preacher, and this book strikes me actually as deeply Christian. So I'm curious how much you feel your upbringing shaped this project. You know, I think you're right about that. It was one of uh, my surprises while writing this book that when I came to the end and I was writing the epilogue and thinking about sort of what my rules for life would be, if I, you know, would really take this more hopeful view of human nature that I've been writing about seriously, that uh, I find myself quoting the Sermon of the Mount uh, over and over again. And it was like, hmm, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in there. So yeah, I guess I'm, uh, I'm really a, uh, a son of my father in many ways. And is there a way in which that conflicts a bit with the book? I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but the book is about arguing that human nature is a much more benevolent nature, a much more cooperative nature than we're often led to believe. But one of the reasons Jesus Christ became a famous international celebrity is that the way of living that he proposes in in, in the Bible, his most famous work, is very difficult, right? To turn mm -hmm. the other cheek. I mean, even the parts you quote, they're quite radically different from how people naturally feel like they react. So I felt like there was actually a bit of a tension between the radical Christian themes of the book, particularly where the book ends, and the idea that what you are simply saying is, this is how humans have always been, and there's a crust put on top of us that keeps us from seeing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's a real paradox here. Let's put it like this. I think it's relatively easy to assume the best in those who are close to you, right? In your friends, in your coworkers, in your neighbors. It becomes much harder to assume the best in those far away from you, right? Strangers, people who've committed crimes, terrorists, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is the radical message that you find in the New Testament, sort of love your enemy, turn the other cheek. Uh, that may sound completely counterintuitive, but it can actually get you some really good results. So I used to believe that that was sort of a naive thing to assume the best in your enemies and those who are far away from you. But then you look at some of the uh, people and countries who actually do this. I've got one chapter in the book about Norwegian prisons where inmates basically get the freedom to, well, do whatever they want apart from leave. You know, They have a cinema in prisons. They've got a music studio. There's one prison that has a, its own music label that is called Criminal Records, and where these these criminals, you know, who've done horrible things, you know, they killed other people or or raped or you name it, um, they still get the freedom to do all these kind of things, and the results are incredibly good. So if you look at the recidivism rate, the chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison, it's nowhere as low as in Norway. So these prisons that don't look like prisons are really, really effective, quite realistic in the end. And I think that, yeah, that is also sort of the message here of, uh, or the message of the Sermon of the Mount, that they, this may sound naive and counterintuitive, but it actually works. Tell me about the idea, because I think it, you mentioned it somewhat quickly, but I think it's really important for this, of non-complementarity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so human beings mirror each other all the time, right? 
So the classic example is I scratch my chin, you scratch your chin, or I yawn and you, is that the correct pronunciation in English? Like yawn and you yawn? Uh, well, well, now now that you've said yawn a couple of times, no pronunciation is going to be correct. <laughs> okay, okay. Like, it's just a weird word to begin with. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yawn. Um, so, right, we imitate each other all the time. And, and often that works, right? You act in a nice and friendly way to me and I return that and it goes on and on and on. But then negative stuff, stuff gets mirrored all the time as well. Now, you can break this with what psychologists call non-complementary behavior. This is what, well, what Jesus got turning the other cheek, right? Uh, and there's quite quite some evidence from psychology that then you can, yeah, sort of, you can turn an, an, a vicious circle or, or something that's going in the wrong direction. You can turn that around. And uh, yeah, you can actually bring out the best in people who, yeah, who didn't trust you or didn't like you before. This struck me as actually the core of the book. Uh, and we're going to talk about your view of human nature and my view of human nature and whether or not there is a human nature. But to get to where you want to go from where we are would require a tremendous commitment to non-complementarity, non-complementary behavior. And that's a really hard ask. Something I was thinking about while reading that was how intuitive non-complementary behavior is with children and not with adults. Hmm. When my one-year-old is a jerk, <laughs> one, I don't interpret it as him being a jerk, but two, reacting with kindness is, I don't want to say always easy, but it's obvious to me that that's what you need to do, right? He's throwing things and screaming and you know trying to hit the dogs in the face, and I'm trying to bring the temperature down, speaking more softly, trying to be gentle, like, what's wrong? It's hard to be a big boy. Whereas... If my partner is acting like a jerk, well, you know what? I'm going to act like a jerk back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. there's a funny thing where the more you believe in other people's fundamental rationality, the more you believe that they should be treating you in a complimentary fashion and you should be treating them in a complimentary fashion because otherwise aren't you being the sucker. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's really hard and it takes a lot of courage. And th those in history who were really the best at it, you know, people like Martin Luther King or Mandela, right? The classic examples, uh, they just had an ability to control themselves that is almost inhuman, right? So I'm not saying we all have to become Gandhis, but yeah, we, you really have to look at their examples and, and to, to understand why their movements were so incredibly successful. I mean, uh, you had Erica Chenoweth on the podcast, right? About what are the most successful movements that try to topple uh, an autocracy or a dictatorship. Well, it turns out that the peaceful movements are the most successful. And the, the reason is they, they bring in way more people than, than violent movements. But it just takes a lot of self-control. So people may think, oh, this guy's written this happy, clappy book about human nature and how people have evolved to be friendly. Well, um, that is true when it comes to uh, those close to you. And then it's relatively easy, but it comes much harder when we're talking about those who are farther away from you. I'm not sure I'm going to come back to it, but the idea that it's easy with those close to you is even something that I'm not sure is true. And, and, and I think we should keep at least in mind to come back to. Let me ask you something that I was confused by in the book. So like, let's start with it as a yes or no question. Do you believe there is such a thing as human nature? Yes, I think so, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a, an old idea that's been especially popular on the left, uh, you know, with Marxists and communists, and that's sort of the idea that human nature is just a blank slate, 
and that you can basically do with humanity whatever you want, right? I think that's wrong. I think we really have a nature. Uh, you have to understand that for 95% of our history, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers in a certain kind of our environment, and there was a selection for a certain kind of behavior. Now, for a long time, I believe that sort of survival of the fittest meant more like, I don't know, survival of the smartest or maybe survival of the meanest or survival of the strongest or whatever. But it turns out that nowadays, evolutionary biologists believe something very different. They literally talk about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had their biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And I think you can still see that in the way that our bodies are designed today. So one of my favorite examples here is that human beings are one of the only species in the whole animal kingdom, apart from a couple of parrots, that were the only species, at least the only primates and mammals that blush, right? Which is really interesting. How could this ever be an evolutionary advantage that we sort of involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else. So that's really sort of in the design of our bodies. Another example that I thought was really interesting is our eyes, right? So if you look at the eyes of human beings, you see that they have white around their irises, right? They've, we've got white sclera. Now all the other primates, so whether you talk about chimpanzees or bonobos uh, or orangutans, they all have dark around their eyes, right? And there are more than 200 other primate species in total. Now th they are a little bit like, poker players wearing shades while we sort of give away our gazes to everyone. So we can all follow each other's gazes. We can look each other in the eye. And I think that helps to establish trust. So scientists call this the cooperative eye hypothesis. And I think that's just, just another example of how we've been shaped by evolution to trust each other and to cooperate. And I think that is our true superpower as a species. So yes, I think that is really in our nature. So is it the case that we have a nature or is it the case that we have natures? Because there's one read of your book, which is some set of the structures in civilization have pulled us in a direction that is unnatural for human beings. And then there's another read of your book, I think, which is that there are many possible human natures, many possible modes of being that are aligned enough with our fundamental orientations towards the world. And depending on which one you put human beings into, which context you put them into, they're going to act in very different ways. Which one is closer to your view? Hmm. Uh, that's a hard decision. You know, it's in human nature to have culture, right? So that is also really what makes it special is that individually, we're not that smart. We're not that impressive. If you do an intelligence test and you let a human toddler over like two years old compete with a pig, then quite often the pig wins, you know, which is, people should keep that in mind when they eat bacon. Uh, but that's another book. Uh, but it's yeah, like, we're, we're not, we're not that special, uh, uh, when it comes to our sort of individual intelligence, but our collective intelligence is, is, is really what, what makes us special is that we can learn from each other. And so we can top uh, all these inventions on, on top of one another. When it comes to all the varieties of culture that we have, right, we are very much shaped by our institutions and our and our circumstances. So when, when you, for example, ask the question of violence, right, are people capable of violence, yes or no? Well, clearly we are. I mean, if you just look at history, we're not only one of the friendliest species, but we're also one of the cruelest species. I've never heard of, of sort of penguins that lock up other groups of penguins and exterminate them all, right? We are capable of the most cruel things that you don't see anywhere else in the animal kingdom. 
But then you go back to the question, is that really in our nature? And the striking thing is that violence is actually really hard for most of us, right? Most of us can't really do it. We've got some quite convincing evidence that, for example, soldiers who were drafted to go to Europe and, uh, and, and to the Pacific, right, in the Second World War, most of them couldn't fire their gun. Uh, only 20, uh, 15 to 25% is one, one estimate were actually able to pull the trigger. Most of them sort of couldn't really do it. Now, the US military took that really seriously. So they started this whole program of con conditioning soldiers and brainwashing soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, so that in later wars, the firing rate would go up. In Vietnam, it was around 19, 95%. Uh, but then many of these soldiers who managed to kill an enemy paid a high price for that, right? So they got P PTSD, for example, they killed something inside themselves as well, which suggests to me that if violence is not, you know, really easy for us, uh, if you compare it to eating food or, you know, having sex, which we obviously like, then maybe it's not what we're born for, right? Maybe it's not that deep in our nature, even though we're obviously capable of it in, in certain circumstances. But, but that seems like a, a tricky space, right? I mean, we have constructed as human beings a very violent world. There is the violence we commit on a mass scale against each other. There's a violence we commit on individual scales against each other. I mean, you can look at kids like they are often violent with each other. I was violent with my siblings, um, yeah. but we inflict incredible violence. You just mentioned bacon against animals, incredible violence at a mass scale there. We inflict incredible violence on the planet. And so one of the things your book does is offer a corrective to to really cynical views of human nature. And so, of course, like we're not mostly violent. Um, I don't walk around the street wanting to punch people, but enough of us are willing to use violence that it seems hard for me to say or, or credit the view that our nature is somehow nonviolent. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the ways that human beings can become violent is when they increase the distance. So psychologically, it's very, very hard to you know, shove down a sword down someone else or use a bayonet, for example. We know that most of the bayonets throughout history uh, that have been produced have probably not been used because most soldiers couldn't do it. If you look at the, you know, the victims uh, after the Battle of the Somme or the Battle of Waterloo, almost all of the wounds were caused by something else. You know, artillery is, is one of the most important causes here because it's psychologically much easier to just push a button and then have an explosion far away, right? So 70 to 80% of all the victims of the First World War were caused by artillery. Another way to increase the distance is obviously psychological distance. And I think this is a really dark truth about humanity is that we're capable of othering and dehumanizing other people and to start treating them as things. And I think this is exactly what happens in the, in the animal industry, right? The meat industry where you know, we are doing things that we could never do, you know, if the, the animals would be standing in front of us, right? We, could, we couldn't eat it. But then if it's far away from us, if there's this whole bureaucratic system uh, where mostly the machines do the horrible violence, violence, then we are capable of it. So I'm not trying to sugarcoat that, right? We are clearly one of the cruelest species, probably the cruelest species in the animal kingdom. But I'm just saying that in many ways, this is a project product of what we call civilization. And that actually for most of our history, when we were nomadic and togetherers, well, something like war, for example, it hardly existed. So convince me that we were less violent as nomadic hunter-gatherers. You have a debate in the book with Steven Pinker on this issue. 
a lot of the record is a, a, a little spotty, so it's, it can be hard to even know what happened. But, but yeah, g- give me your give me give me your side of this. What is Pinker, who believes you've been getting less violent throughout our history? Yeah, um, yeah. What is it? What do you think he gets wrong? Yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of his work. You know, I read all of his books, and I used to believe that in the state of nature, basically when we were still hunter gatherers, that we lived these lives that were described by the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes as nasty, brutish, and short, right? And that civilization has basically been this slow march of of progress. But then for this book, I started going deeper in the academic literature and discovered that the evidence is so, so thin. And actually what we have points in the other direction. So obviously it's very hard to know how our ancestors lived 30 to 40,000 years ago, but we can look at two things. So in the first place, we can look at ethnographic field reports, right? So there've been quite a few anthropologists who lived with nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes who still lived in the 19th or the 20th century, and they studied them. Now, it's really important that you focus on the nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes and that you don't focus on hunter-gatherers who already have started farming or have already domesticated horses or whatever, because those are very recent phenomena like of, of civilization of the past 10,000 years. Um, now, if you really study those nomadic hunter-gatherers, you discover that you know, they don't really do wars. It's very rare phenomenon. They are are capable of violence, obviously. You know, there are homicides, there's jealousy, there's aggression. I mean, that's that's a, a story as old as humanity itself. But like specific organized group violence, you don't really see it there. Now, then if you look at the archaeology, if there was really some kind of war of all against all going on in our deep history, you would expect that at some point, someone would have made a nice cave painting out of it, right? We've got hundreds of cave paintings of, of people who are hunting animals. But it, you know, if you were really so violent, then you would expect some paint, painting uh, of that. You don't see it. But then when people became sedentary, when they settled down, and especially after they invented agriculture, you suddenly see a lot of those cave paintings. I think that's a powerful piece of evidence. The last thing you can look at is... Uh, uh, skeletons that has, have been excava- excavated. And then you see that we have around 3,000 skeletons in total uh, that are old enough sort of to give a, uh, to represent our deepest history before we settle down. And again, pretty much no evidence for, for violence. So I admit that, you know, it's very hard to know exactly how we lived 30, 40,000 years ago. But what we have points in a very different direction that than people like Steven Pinker argue. As an aside, if people wanted to learn more about this, is there a book you recommend of hunter-gatherer anthropology or Yes, absolutely. Uh, so my one of my favorites is uh, James Sussman. He's written this book about affluence without abundance. It's it's really a terrific book. It's about the uh, tribe that li- still lives actually today in the Kalahari Desert in Namibia. So something's called the Bushmen, and um, yeah, it's it's so interesting uh, because there are striking similarities between all these nomadic and together tribes around the globe. They're quite egalitarian, right? They're quite some would call them proto-feminists, right? like in, in terms of equality between the sexes. They're relatively healthy compared to farmers and city dwellers who came later, right? Hunter-gathering is seems to be a healthier way of life. It's also a more relaxed way of life. You work like 20, 30 hours a week, maybe. And uh, also when you think about infection diseases, you got to remember that like most infection diseases are products of civilization. You know, if people living really close closely together and domesticating animals, 
so malaria and polio and uh, COVID-19, these are all sort of products of civilization, I think. Um, so that's a really great book to, to give you an idea of the kind of culture that you, that you get when you live as a nomadic and gatherer. What is the importance of this debate you're having? So let's say I buy it all, right? That prior to agriculture, domestication of animals, to civilization as we think about it, that hunter-gatherers are more peaceful. And then however many thousands of years ago, we began um, cultivating wheat and domesticating cows. And now everything's a mess. <laughs> okay, what are the implications of that? Who, who are you arguing with and what do you want to convince them of? I think the implications are huge, <laughs> to be honest. In our culture, specifically in Western culture, there's a very old theory, uh, a very old idea that Franz de Waal, you know, my, my fellow Dutchman who's a primatologist, he calls it veneer theory. And the idea here is that civilization is only a thin veneer and that when something terrible happens, say you shipwreck on an island or there's a natural disaster or a pandemic, that people go back to their true selves. You know, they become these aggressive, violent monsters once again. So we sort of really have to protect this thin, thin veneer of civilization. Um, I think that often this theory has been used by those in power to justify their power because they're basically saying, if we can't trust each other, then you need us, right? You need uh, kings and monarchs and generals and CEOs. You need what Thomas Hobbes called a Leviathan, right? That was uh, the British philosopher's uh, argument that um, in the state of nature, we live these really violent lives, right? These unhappy lives where there was a war of all against all going on. But then luckily, civilization came and we had this leviathan that controlled all of us right that, that's basically his argument now as you know sort of rousseau the french philosopher made the opposite argument he said no 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 actually the state of nature was pretty good and we lived relatively healthy and relaxed lives but then we made the huge disaster of settling down and and starting this 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 experiment that we call civilization and we should never have done it now again i used to believe that Hobbes was the realist and Rousseau was the naive romantic. But if you actually look, at, I think, have an honest look at the latest evidence we got from archaeology and anthropology and, and history as well, you, you get this completely different picture. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot at stake there because it implies that maybe we can move to a very different kind of society, not a society where there's a lot of hierarchy, but you can actually trust people to live in a much more egalitarian way, a much more genuinely democratic way. I think that's what's really at stake here. You know, debating human nature is never innocent. It's always about the, the biggest of things. It has huge implica implications. When people have this debate right now in politics, what they tend to be debating is something between capitalism and some form of socialism. And what you are doing goes way before the construction of those economic models right, all the way back to civilization. So what is it in civilization, in your view, that set humanity down this more violent, antisocial path? What, what, what are the guilty dynamics here? So there's this famous passage in, in Rousseau's work on the origin of inequality, where he says, uh, the moment that the first man, uh, it was probably a man, said, look, this piece of land here, that's mine. And that we believe that, that was the moment when everything went wrong. So he sort of argues that the invention of private property was meant also the birth of hierarchy and 
tribal behaviors and that groups started to oppose each other, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Again, you know, uh, if you look at the, the evidence we have here. Now, I don't want to give people the picture that I'm sort of against civilization, right? Or that I want to go back and live as a nomadic and together. Obviously not. I mean, we've made tremendous progress in the past couple of decades. I mean, I mean, I really think there's a lot of technological and moral progress, apart from the way we treat animals, obviously, uh, that we should be really grateful for. We are richer, we are wealthier, we are healthier than ever. But the question is, how sustainable is it? If you look at the last 10,000 years, Yes, there's been the, a lot of progress in the last 30 to 40 years, but that's not really much, you know, if you uh, look at that uh, from a zoomed out perspective. And uh, yeah, how will it be 100 years from now or 200 years from now, uh, if you look at things like climate change or the extinctions of species? So I guess it's a little bit too early to say that we don't really know whether this experiment was a smart thing to do, yes or no. And I'll note here, people want to go back a couple months in the podcast, there's a good conversation with philosopher Toby Ord which is who argues that we're also building a huge amount of existential risk into the system that yes, on the one hand, we've made a lot of technological progress. And on the other hand, created the capacity to kill every human being and virtually every living thing on the world or make the world uninhabitable. So how that experiment turns out on the 200 <laughs> yeah. year time frame is an open question. Yeah. But I, I want to go back to the civilization thing because, okay, private property of some kind, whether it's a monarch or a capitalist, or for that matter, um, the communist party, is, is sort of at the root of your story. The way I often hear the story of civilization as man's original sin being told is it it's a bit of a bargain we make, where we make human life, particularly for a while, much, much worse. But in creating agriculture, creating the domestication of animals as we did, we make the capacity, like, like earth-carrying capacity for humanity much higher, right? There is not a version of hunter-gatherer existence with 9 billion people. There just isn't. And so you're dealing with this question, which early hunter-gatherers did not face in, in this way, of how do you have humanity at scale? And one thing that that creates as a question is then how relevant are the forms of social organization and their effects from a time when humanity wasn't dealing with it at scale, when it didn't need to feed this many people, when it didn't need to have these massively scaled forms of production. Mm -hmm. Well, let me give you a couple of examples of where I think it is relevant to know where we've come from. So I used to believe for a long time that bullying is just part of life, right? That kids who bully each other, it, it just happens. And obviously we have to do whatever we can to make sure it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen as much as it as it is happening now. But you know, it's just what kids do. I used to believe that. Then you go delve into the sociology of bullying and you actually discover that bullying is very much the product of specific institutional circumstances. So sociologists have known since the 1950s or 1960s that a lot of bullying happens at so-called total institutions. So total institutions are those institutions where there's a strict hierarchy, where you can't leave, where there is a sort of competition that is organized from the top. Um, so a, a really good example here is I think uh, a prison is a, is, a, is a typical total institution. And we know that a lot of bullying takes, takes place there in traditional prisons. Another example is in, in nursing homes where also a lot of bullying takes place or sort of the classic strict schools like boarding schools. We know that a lot of bullying happens there. 
also because sort of people, they can't really get away, only maybe in the summer or during Christmas. Now, if you design your schools in a very different kind of way, in a bit more nomadic way, right, where sort of, I'd like to call it breathing institutions, where you don't have this strict hierarchy, you mix all the ages, you mix all the academic uh, levels, and you give kids the freedom to follow their own learning pathways. Well, one really striking thing when, when you study these kind of schools is that bullying almost completely disappears. So suddenly it's, it's not sort of deep in the nature of kids anymore to do this, but it turns out that actually it was a product of very artificial kind of environment that we had created. You know, if you think about sort of the classic school, it's very strange. Nomadic and together children, they they just sort of freely play all the ages together, all the levels together, et cetera, et cetera. And if people don't like a certain person or feel they're being bullied, then they just go away, right? They have the exit option. But we've designed our schools in a way that it's just not possible anymore. And, and then we, th then we say to each other, Oh, it's such tragedy that this happens. Well, actually, we've designed it to be this way. So I, I think that's one example where a more realistic, more scientific view of human nature, where you actually know where we've come from, helps you to build better institutions. I, I want to try to think this example through. So I was, I had a real issue with bullying when I was growing up. And it's something I think about a lot and have wanted to explore more on the show because I think it's a more fundamental dynamic in a lot of people's lives and we give it credit for. And I appreciate, by the way, that you mentioned nursing homes, right? People don't think of all the places bullying happens. I want to be optimistic here, and I'd like you to convince me to be optimistic here. But a couple of things. So one, I mean, everybody who's been bullied knows that bullying doesn't primarily take place in the most totalizing part of a total institution. It actually takes place in the parts where you have the most capacity to move, right? Bullying takes place at recess. It doesn't take place in the classroom primarily, for instance. And you mentioned adventure playgrounds and you're like, kids don't get bullied at adventure. I, I got bullied at adventure playground. <laughs> so when I read that, I was like, wait, that doesn't quite ring true to me. Um, Online, there's a huge issue with bullying, right? Bullying on Instagram, on Facebook. But that would also be an example of a situation people can easily move around. They can go to another group. They could go across the entirety of the internet. But here they are getting like bullied on their Facebook page. And even within families, there's some amount of bullying, but there's also just a, a generalized amount of um, favoritism and its opposite. And one reason I think a lot about bullying is that I think it's a human dynamic that actually scales up and down. I think that there's one way to understand the treatment of outgroups. Um, I'll use Jews as an example because it's one I'm familiar with. It is a kind of incredibly scaled bullying that goes into a very, very dangerous place and has in many different societies. So what makes you confident in this? What makes you confident given how many different kinds of institutions appear to give rise to this behavior? that you would get rid of it by creating more open forms of play or um, internal school construction, say? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say you could get totally rid of it, but I've just been really touched by, you know, I visited one one school here in the Netherlands that, you know, is organized in a quite strange way. People would say, well, this is, is a little bit like the Norwegian prison, right? You look at it and you're like, hmm, this is not a prison or this is not what a real school looks like. So no homework anymore, no, a very little hierarchy um, and mix, mixing all the ages together and people of all different levels, you, you mix them all together. And yeah, one of the things that touched me the most was that everyone I spoke to, and uh, I was really convinced by this, that there was hardly any bullying going on here. 
And to me, it made sense because sort of the older kids felt more responsible, the responsibility for the younger kids as well. There was sort of this more kind of, I don't know, feeling of community there. And I was also convinced by just looking at a lot of the, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, sociological evidence here is that, for example, a lot of much, much more bullying tends to happen at, at, at boarding schools, for example. It's one of the great tragedies of Harry Potter is that Harry Potter became so popular that lots of parents started to send their kids to boarding school and uh, the results have not been good. You know, there are like in, in, in the UK, there are lots of uh, psychologists and psychiatrists specialized in, in what they call boarding school survivors, right? Because people have, quite a few people have been really traumatized by it. One of the difficulties, so in, in your book, um, you go through some of these institutions, the Agora School, uh, there's an institution of sort of decentralized nursing care groups that is super interesting that you talk about that has a very different approach to management and does not have hierarchy and, and, and seems to work extremely well. One of the tough things for me, whenever I read books that work like this is, so I used to do and still do to some degree a lot of healthcare reporting. And a constant thing that would happen is that there would be a program that worked really well and it did something different than every other program did. And you would go and you'd do this big piece on it. And then there'd be an effort to scale the program up and it wouldn't work. And this would happen, I mean, over and over and over and over again. And we see this in education too. And it often is because whatever is happening in that first program has to do with some catalytic, catalytic combination of excellent leadership and an internal mission. And that as things get bigger, they just get harder, as anybody who's built a bureaucracy will know. And so what makes you confident that these can scale there have been a lot of, I'm living in Northern California now, there have been a lot of efforts at alternative education models out here. And some of them have done well, right? Like Montessori is, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal. But parents would, I think, be pretty happy to send their kids to schools that were less structured and more open if the kids wouldn't get bullied and they'd have, be more creative and have, have better academic achievement. But those schools haven't dominated, particularly at the primary and, and secondary levels. Why do you think that is given how much experimentation there has been in the space. Hmm, hmm. Well, when it comes to schools, uh, if I look at the Netherlands, for example, where we've got a publicly financed school system, what is so hard is that the quality of the school is judged by looking at the sort of the results, how these kids perform at standardized testing. But then you've got these schools who are sort of against this kind of standardized testing because they believe that you miss so much there, right? So much of what people can learn when they follow their own learning pathways and how they sort of develop their creativity. Well, you can't test that. So that's sort of the difficult situation where, they in, where they're in, is that if they want to get funding from the government, then they have to do well enough on these kind of standardized tests. But it is in their own sort of philosophy that they don't want to do well on these standardized tests. Actually, if they do would do well, then they would sort of betray their own philosophy. So I guess that's, that's, a, that's a real difficulty here, is that it's... It's it's very hard sort of to go out of the system uh, in in that way. But then again, I think you you just got to keep in mind that you should never think in blueprints. So what works here may not work there. But you can just sort of start with I think a bit more hopeful, a bit more optimistic view of human nature, and then see where that takes you. And if you look at the the other example that you already mentioned, you know, Buurtzorg, which sort of translates as neighborhood care, it's now the biggest healthcare organization. I think, or almost one of the biggest in the Netherlands, got 15,000 employees and it's expanding in other countries and it delivers healthcare uh, of a higher quality at a cheaper cost. And um, 
pays its employees higher salaries as well. It's like win, win, win. And the philosophy behind it is very simple. You know, you can just work in self-directed teams of nurses, 12 to 30 nurses, who decide for themselves, you know, or, or agree on this, that, you know, what kind of additional education they need, uh, who they're going to hire as colleagues. And I mean, it's not a perfect organization. Think, think go wrong now and then, and sometimes they're in fights, etc. But on average, it's it's it works really well with this incredibly simple philosophy. Uh, it's, and that's one of the really funny things. If you talk to the founder, his name is Joost de Bloch as well. He doesn't really sound like a, how do you say this, a professor of management, because he's, he says things like, well, you know, management is bullshit. You know, it's useless most of the time. You just got to let people do their job. Uh, and that at first, that sounds like, hmm, are you, do you really know what you talk about? But then you look at what he's achieved. Well, it's, it's an organization with 15,000 employees when it works really well. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. So one of the things I think this raises is a question which goes back to our civilization conversation is how much the issue for humanity is simply scale. As you were just saying, like standardized testing, not a huge fan of it either. I don't think anybody abstractly loves it, but it it happens because it is a way for a society operating at a massive scale to try to level out the playing field. I When I went to UC Santa Cruz, for instance, I was the first year when grades were mandatory. Until then, UC Santa Cruz had been known for what they called narrative evaluation, so you got like a like the teacher would write you a little essay about how you did in the class. And the problem for kids coming out of Santa Cruz was that say law schools or med schools didn't want to read through teachers writing a page for every class every student had ever taken at UC Santa Cruz. And so they had to move to grades so that the kids could basically interoperate with the rest of society. And that happens all the time, right? It happens in healthcare, right? There, I mean, at the this is sort of what I'm saying here that at the at a at a low level, right? At at a at the mid-sized level, you can do amazing, amazing things. And then you have to like start like locking into hospital billing codes and somebody gets sued. And so you have to make sure you're dealing with a liability and on and on and on and on, particularly as you get bigger and as you get more far flung, um, and as you're dealing with more different kinds of systems and state laws and so on, and things begin to get very lowest common denominator. Like, how much do you think one of the problems here is simply that human beings are trying to operate at a scale that doesn't leave much room for this kind of creativity and and, and optimism and that what we need is a more radical form of decentralization or localism, a kind of progressive localism that there, frankly, aren't that many advocates for out there right now? Mm-hmm. 
I don't think the problem is so much of skill as it is of hierarchy and power differences. Because if, if you think about what the Leviathan wants, right? What does the manager or the CEO or the king or you know the prime minister, what does, does he want? Well, he wants to be in control. So then you need data, you need to measure. And we all know if you measure things, you never, you're never just merely measuring it. You're controlling it yourself because you're going to have to come up with, in healthcare, for example, you're going to have to come up with definitions of what sort of quality healthcare is so that you can sort of measure whether the, the, the healthcare is delivered at the right moment, at the right price, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that a lot of these issues are actually a product of us organizing our systems in a hierarchical way. Now, can you turn that around and, and scale, still keep, keep that skill? Yes, I think there are a lot of examples of that. Actually, already, if you look, you know, if we, to go back to nomadic and togetherers, for a long time, scientists believed, or at least a lot of scientists have argued that sort of 150 is the magic number, right? Dumber's number. And that after that, sort of groups start breaking down and they don't really work that well anymore because sort of this is sort of the magne- uh, our cognitive limits that we uh, don't really know more, ca- can know more people than that. Turns out, it, there's the, the the limit doesn't really exist, you know. If you look at networks of nomadic togetherers, they're much larger, larger than 150. Actually, over a lifetime, they can meet I don't know a thousand or fifteen hundred people and interact with them and learn from them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I think that can can actually work in a decentralized way. The real problem is when someone thinks I should organize this, I should try and see how the, the sort of to make this work when things often already work on their own, right? And uh, yeah, I think there's this one saying from Jos de Bloch, the guy I mentioned earlier, you know, the founder of Burtzorg, he said, it's relatively easy to make something easy, more complex. And it's quite difficult to make something that is complex, a bit more easy to understand, right? And I sometimes think that a big part of what we call the knowledge economy is all about making relatively simple things more complex. And then we need all those people who have been so educated sort of to understand all these extraordinarily complex systems to make the world work. Well, maybe we didn't need it in the first place, right? We didn't need all these extraordinary complex systems uh, of bureaucracy and healthcare, for example. And we should basically just go back where, where we were in the first place. So I'm going to give voice to my own internal conflict over this. I find this argument very compelling. And then I've also lived out part of the other side of it. And something I find constantly, particularly on the left, but not only, is an idea that all management is bullshit, that managers, bureaucrats, politicians, et cetera, they just want control. They just want to be able to see things, measure them so they can control and manage them. And there's something to it, right? I mean, I've read James Scott seeing like a state, like there's something to it. There's no doubt about it. And I will also tell you, like, there is a reason that people end up creating management structures, and it's often not because the managers want them. Like when I started Vox, I started it along with you know my co-founders, very consciously with very little internal management. And you know what? We added more because it was demanded of us that there was more. People wanted more feedback. They wanted more structures to support them. Um, also, something that you and I have talked about in our previous conversation, you often end up having to manage not for the best outcomes, but against the worst, right? So there's a different level of management that is required to make sure that the people who are struggling have the support they need or to make sure that the worst things, like the worst errors, say, don't happen. 
versus what like the best, most like hardcore, self-motivated, et cetera, players want. And I, I do think that they're like, on the one hand, it goes too far in the other direction and you get these ossified bureaucracies, but there is a real thing. I, I will just say, having been on both sides of it, because I am myself like an like a very self-motivated, like entrepreneurial, like I really don't need much management and never have and really don't like it, frankly. And I thought everybody else would like that too. Yeah. I yeah, thought it I would know. be great. I was <laughs> going to totally manage agree, everybody you know. the way I wanted to be managed and they were all going to love it. And you know what? They didn't. I can like I can tell you that for sure. And I've talked to other people who have started these, who have started startups and you know, like all these creatives who create something, they think they're going to create something that has no internal bureaucracy because like they hated bureaucracy and that's why they left. And then if they get big enough, they have a bureaucracy. Um, and I recognize like there are a couple counterexamples out there, like the um, uh, the healthcare organization who you've mentioned, whose name I keep forgetting how to pronounce, so I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to do it. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> it, it's not a total, I just want to say, because like it's not a total accident that this keeps reconstructing itself. It happens for a reason. And I, I do feel sometimes like this kind of argument or sometimes the David Grabers of the world or et cetera, nobody quite likes the outcome. But there's, I think, a, a lack of grappling with why it happens. Because like a lot of managers, what they would love is just manage a team of self-starters who don't need their involvement very much. That would be great. But that's not what you get. Like you're an editor and their writers want to talk on the phone five times a day because like they just need a lot of emotional support to like get their job done. Or they want to know how many stories a week and what is the traffic number so they can know if they're doing what they feel like is a good job. And like saying, eh, like it's just about how the stories are working and if they're good, like that doesn't do it. And then if you tell them they're not good, like then they want something more reliable. So I'd like to hear you grapple a little bit more with why bureaucracy comes about because I don't think it's just because managers want to like sit around doing a lot of quarterly reports. They don't like it actually any more than anybody else does. Oh, there's so much to say about this. Um, the first thing I'm thinking about is this distinction that anthropologists make between sort of two forms of hierarchy. Sort of the first one is uh, sort of status based. You are in power simply because I don't know you were born at the right moment in history or because you have more money or because you have the right job title or whatever. Uh, and the other is more sort of prestige based is that you actually know stuff or you're, you're just good at helping other people or, you know, sort of what's the best decisions being made at, uh, uh, to be made at a certain point. And you really see this with hunter gatherers is that they really, that they, um, nomadic hunter gatherers, they lo don't like the status based differences, but they obviously there are leaders. There are sometimes there are power differences, but they're more based on, yeah, actual abilities and actual achievements that someone is just better at doing a certain kind of job. What they also know is, and this is uh, one of the most important findings from psychology that we have so much evidence for, is that power corrupts. Power is just a really incredibly dangerous thing. So what nomadic hunter-gatherers do all the time is they try to keep those in power in check. And the most important thing they use here is shame. So again, we, we talked about the, that human beings are unique uh, uh, as a species uh, because we can blush. I think that's a really telling fact. But uh, there are also sort of these wonderful descriptions from anthropologists. Uh, James Sussman, who I mentioned earlier, you know, from the book Affluence with, Without Abundance, he, he describes this process of insulting the meat. So imagine that you're a hunter-gatherer and you come back. Uh, and you've, you know, you've done a great job, you know, you've come back with a lot of meat. Then the process starts that they call insulting the meat, where people will say, oh, that's, 
that's not impressive at all and um, I'm not it's not really good and you're not a good hunter etc cetera, etc cetera. and then what would be expected of you that you would say is yeah yeah I know I know it's not too much and people would all be really happy because they know they would have good dinner that night I think that what is on this play there is is a kind of community that knows that power is this incredibly dangerous thing it doesn't say that sort of you can't make distinctions or based on real achievements but it has this strong realization that yeah you need to be very careful with this kind of thing and that's also i think how you can organize your uh companies so i'm not saying you know get rid of all the managers but make sure there's a, a really egalitarian dynamic on the work floor where yeah people sort of uh feel at ease when they're criticizing uh their leaders and that often leadership is also only temporary right it's not that you, you'll always be making the decisions but only if, you, if you're the right person at the right time uh so again uh, i think we can sort of learn lessons here from from the way we've done things for a long time in our deep history what do you think it would look like like paint the paint a picture for me because you're somebody who thinks in utopias your first book was about utopia paint a picture for me of what it would look like if we took some of these findings, if we had from the beginning taken some of these findings really seriously, but we're, we're, we're operating at very large scale, right? And, you know, 15,000 is great. It's actually not a huge company by the standards of these things, you know, like, a, 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 and, and similarly, like at the scale of governments. So when you imagine where this could lead, you know, your last book was very much about things like social income supports and, and, and other things, but this is much more about human organization. So, like, how would America be organized or the UK or Germany, right? Like, what do you imagine here? Mm -hmm. Well, the idea of universal basic income, my previous book was about that, very much fits this view of human nature. Actually, it's the reason why I started writing this book, because I, I had sort of written about all the scientific evidence that it actually works. You know, you can give people basic income and they don't turn out to be really lazy and they don't waste the money on alcohol and drugs, but they come up with really interesting things. You know, they start a new company or they move to a new job. It's like this venture capital for the people. And while I was sort of debating the book with, with readers, what I experienced again and again is that people were not so much interested in the scientific evidence, or at least that what would happen again and again is that after 30 or 40 minutes, I would be having a debate about human nature with other people, right? So the most common objection was, this is not going to work because in the end, people are just selfish. And then I realized that I had to go much deeper and sort of resolve this tendency in my own thought because I, <laughs> before I started on this journey with this book, I used to have a more cynical view of human nature. And I think that basic income is sort of a, a, a really good example here because it, it also goes right through the sort of uh, old distinction between capitalism versus communism and, and the market versus the state. Because on the one hand, you would have a relatively large state in terms of taxes, right? Redistribution, you need to finance the whole thing. But then you would have a smaller state in terms of paternalism, right? People have the freedom to decide for themselves what to do with the money. So that's that's one example. The other thing that that you you'll be doing most of the time here is yeah, you'll be trying trying to design your institutions in a different way. Human beings are really shaped by institutions, right? That's 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 what we become. So what would a school look like if it would have a more hopeful view of human nature? What would a prison look like? What would our democracy look like? To say something about that last thing, I think we could move more in the direction of a participatory, a deliberative kind of democracy, where you don't treat citizens as uh, these people who just watch television and vote 
once every four years, but you treat them as, as much more engaged kind of people who actually want to participate and maybe be a politician themselves uh, sometimes in their lives. So, yeah, I think that sort of everything changes once you have this new view of human nature. I, d I don't like to think in blueprints of it should be like this or it should be like that, but I am very excited about those people who are already experimenting with it, right? And already sort of show a way forward. And that's sort of what I try to sh show in the second half of the book is that there are already a lot of people who are actually doing this. You know, this actually clarifies something for me uh, uh, about the book, which is I think I disagree with you about what you're trying to change in, in human nature, which is, which is a weird thing to say to an author. But I think you're I think what you think is the obstacle is not at least what I think the obstacle is. So your experience of debating with people about UBI and, and, and things like that is that they get caught up on this idea that if you give people the money, they're going to waste it, right? Or if you don't put people in prison forever, they're going to come out and, and treat them terribly and punish them. They're going to come out and, and, and commit a crime again, right? And I think all that's true. And I find, to me, one of the most powerful things you've said to me in the course of our different conversations is like, what if we designed systems for the 99% of people who will act decently and not the 1% who may act indecently. And I think that's right. But to connect actually to what I was picking up on at the beginning of the conversation, but I think I didn't quite realize it why, it actually seems to me the problem here is not what people will do, but what they will do when they are disappointed by others. It's non-complementary behavior. So the issue is not that you can't design social programs that are very generous and non-paternalistic, and most people do the right thing, it's that we get so fucking angry at the people doing the wrong thing. The amount of work going in right now in the American set of stimulus programs to make sure that like no small business who doesn't deserve it gets some money, um, the amount of work that in general goes into unemployment insurance to make sure that nobody who doesn't deserve it gets unemployment insurance. And it's not crazy. The work goes in because like it will destroy these programs if widespread reports of fraud begin to come out. Um, you know, the Solyndra as the example for this Department of Energy loans program, loan guarantee program that funded a return to profit to tax funded a huge amount of incredibly valuable investment, but something didn't work out and people really turned on it. That to me, the actual issue is not so much like, convincing people that like most people will do the right thing, but convincing them to calm down if a couple don't. Convincing them that it is okay that like some fraud, some waste, some even criminal behavior mm -hmm. is a worthwhile cost to pay to allow these things to happen so that most people can be treated decently. It's like, it's actually the punitive reaction of the decent majority, so to speak, would you can argue whether I guess they're decent, that is often the problem, say in the prison thing, than it is the um, belief that like most people wouldn't be fine. Just we are so intent on not letting somebody screw us over or punishing somebody we feel deserves it, that we will like create a much worse world for ourselves. Um, and by the way, you see that in all kinds of experiments of kids too. Like, People really don't like to feel like they're being taken advantage of. I guess that's what my, my one of my messages is also in your personal life is just accept the collateral damage. So there's this wonderful book written by Maria Konnikova, a social psychologist, uh, about the, all the tricks of, of confidence. How do you say the confidence man, right? Who uh, try to rip you off or are really good at committing all kinds of fraud. Um, and so she worked on that book for, I don't know, three or four years. 
And then she was asked in an interview with the Financial Times, like, Maria, you know everything about what they can do, right? These professional tricksters and, and conmen. You know, you must be really afraid that, you know, people can rip you off all the time. And she said, well, actually the opposite. I've learned to accept that these people can do their job because trust is the water we swim in. You know, it's just in our nature to trust most other people all the time. And that's why our society can actually function. And it's why human beings have conquered the globe, right? And Neanderthals didn't do it, but we're actually really good at cooperating on a scale. And I just come to, yeah, accept that this is just collateral damage and that the alternative is much worse. You know, if I would never want to be ripped off, then I would have to just distrust all people all the time. And that's when I read that, I realized that if you've never been ripped off, you know, if you've never been the, the victim of some kind of confidence game, then you should really go and see a therapist <laughs> because, right, maybe your basic attitude to, to life isn't trusting enough. Now, when it comes to the question, can we actually do this? I'm a bit more optimistic here because there are examples of societies uh, where people don't go totally nuts if there's this one example of something going wrong, like a Solyndra or a terrorist attack, which is maybe an even better example. If you look at Norway, for example, uh, you had the horrible attack of Breivik, uh, what was it, in 2011, I think, uh, You know, where dozens of kids were murdered. And the response was, in the words of the prime minister, was more openness, more transparency, more democracy. And it was there was also almost like this patriotic thing around it. Like, no, we're not going to be the same as them, right? We're, we're going to respond in our Norwegian way. And so, yes, Breivik is going to go to one of those prisons where you have a PlayStation, right? And we're not going to uh, sort of sink to his level. And there, you can feel sort of real pride in that. Um, so obviously, you know, for, for many of us and for many societies, it's a long way from here to Norway. I, I totally get that. But it's not impossible. No, but this to me is is actually like such the exciting part of your book. And it's why the Christian themes laced through it, the sort of radical Christian themes, right? Not prosperity gospel stuff was so interesting to me that this to me is not human nature. This is really difficult. This is a really hard practice. And what you are asking here, it's funny because like you have a book that's very much about trying to get people to believe that there's more fundamental goodness and pro-social behavior in humans than our civilization often trusts or, or, or brings out. But to get where you want to go, it seems to me, it really does come back to this question, which does violate a lot of our intuitions going back to a very young age of how do we act in non-complementary ways? And you're making an argument throughout the book that we should talk about that by acting in non-complementary ways, you actually encourage more of the behavior that you want, right? And, and we should talk here about Pygmalion effects and, and, and things like that, because I think you're making the argument that you don't just have to be Christ-like, that you can, in a way, be self-interested about this. Um, you know, in the same way that I try to bring down the temperature and be nice to my son when he's having a hard day, I sort of do that because I would like him to stop screaming at me. And if I just scream at him, he's just going to scream louder. <laughs> and the same is true like as a husband. Like if I'm if my partner's having a bad day and I'm nice, it's more likely that we're both going to get out of it than if I'm mean. Um, and so you're making an argument in the book that what you expect out of people is what you get out of them. And the, the trick for me is that it doesn't feel like that's human nature, but it feels like that is true. Do you want to talk a bit more about that principle that like what the way you treat people is or what you expect from them is going to shape how they act? 
Yeah. So some things are just true no matter what, right? Is that, I don't know, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Uh, this is just facts and you can't get around them. But then there are also things that become true if we actually believe in them. So in medicine, the, the standard example is obviously the placebo effect. It's a huge amount of evidence for that. And also the nocebo effect is that if people will believe that they'll get sick from something that they'll actually can get sick or, or feel worse. And I think that my view of human nature is sort of two things at the same time. So on the one hand, I'm arguing there's a lot more good in us than we tend to assume. So for example, when there's a crisis, like an earthquake or something like that, you, again and again, you see an explosion of altruism and cooperation. Uh, we now have more than 700 case studies from sociology that show that, you know, when there's something like that, people start cooperating on a, on a really big scale. Rebecca Solnit wrote this wonderful book, right? She, you had her on the podcast about... Uh, how people behaved after uh, Katrina, for example. The press is full of story about very nasty behavior, plundering, looting, etc. But what scientists actually found out later is that people behaved in a very cooperative way most of the time. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, I'm also saying that if we actually adopt this view of human nature, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially if you we not only adopt it in our own lives, but also design our institutions in a different way so that it will bring out the best. This is also where we can sort of go back to my religious upbringing because when I was 19 years old, I was obsessed with all these books written by people like Richard Dawkins, you know, The God Delusion and Sam Harris, uh, you know, sort of the new atheists who were basically debunking religion and showing that it's irrational to believe in God. And uh, so that was a point in my life when, I mean, when you're 18 or 19 years old, uh, you're sort of trying to define yourself and thinking about, um, should I be religious? Should I believe in God? Did Jesus die for my sins? And there was this moment when I was around that age that I sort of decided to become an atheist, which I think is in itself a very Christian thing to do or very religious thing to do to sort of define yourself as an atheist because you're sort of defining yourself uh, in opposition to something else. But uh, as I became older, I started to sort of become less interested in all those debates. I, I sort of used to devour, devour those, all those books written by the Dawkins of, of this world, but I became less interested in it because and I became more interested in the question, what would actually be the effect be if people would believe this or people would believe that? And I think we spent too much time debating sort of the, the factual truthness or this, this or that dogma, and we talk too little about actually the consequences of our ideas and our beliefs. And then you have these books, you know, from, I don't know, Christopher Hitchens talking about how religion poisons everything, <laughs> right? And I then I thought about my parents, and I think they're, they're wonderful people, and religion does a huge amount of good in their lives. So I think in that way, I like it that you describe it as a, as a religious book, because the, a big part of the book is about that, that even if I'm wrong, then I still think it's a good idea that people believe I'm right because I think it can have really good social consequences. I, I, I like that. I like that line. I also, I just, I resonate to that journey so much. I did the same thing. I read a bunch of, I actually did a little bit before The New Atheist. How, how old are you actually? I realize I don't know this. 32. So we're, you're just a couple years younger than me, which that didn't used to happen to me. Like nobody was younger than me and now everybody is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I did this. I was a couple years uh, ahead of you. So I was like reading a different set of literature on it. It was like Chris Hitchens came out with that book, I think when I was in college, if I remember correctly. But uh, I got so into biblical contradiction literature. 
I was such an <laughs> asshole about this. I could like tell you all of the parts of the Bible that contradicted each other and like really hit you with it. And then over time, I kind of had the same experience you did, which is, look, I don't believe in monotheistic religion. I just don't. I don't think it's true. And I also don't care, really. Um, I'm very interested in where people's ethics get them, much more so than I am in like whether or not they have any grip on ultimate truth, because it's not like I think that you know, your Richard Dawkins, your Sam Harris's, et cetera, like actually understand the true nature of reality. And when they're at their best, they will admit that they don't either, right? The amount we don't know, like we are looking through a pinhole. I just talked about this in a podcast that's going to come out, I think, before this one, but I don't know that I actually expressed it very well. But I just read this book by a guy named Greg Boyle called Tattoos on the Heart. Um, he is a Jesuit priest who ministers in a gang intense part of Los Angeles and has for years. And at the point he wrote the book I'd read, um, which is years ago, he had buried more than 100 and I think it was 70 kids um, in his parish, in his area, who were killed in gang violence. And he also had created this like ministry to get people out of gangs. And he talks in the book about the work of working with the same children who were killing the children he was also working with and he was burying. And he talks about trying to love them too. And there are parts of the book where he talks about where he sees God and where he sees grace that just the logical part of my brain is, says, like, this is ridiculous. You are giving God credit for this moment of grace and all these other things that you're, you know, all powerful creator is letting happen. You're not blaming them for I, I I like I can't right I like I, part of me recalls I hate when people say well God has a plan or everything happens for a reason I hate it and at the same time whatever he is doing has allowed him for decades and decades and decades to sit and bear witness and be compassionate inside a level of suffering that is I I never touch I never touch and nor does Richard Dawkins and. There is something about his practice, his ethical practice, his quality of try of creating an idea of God where he is constantly noticing and emphasizing moments of grace as opposed to the moments of suffering that has let him do something that most people has let him do a level of good most people will never come near. And do I agree with his theological beliefs? No. Do I think the problem with theodicy is well solved? I actually don't. Like I just don't. <laughs> And am I impressed by the kind of cramped rationalism that I can deploy in an argument? No. Like, where's it getting me? Like, how much am I doing? Um, that's not, by the way, to say, I really want to be clear about this. I have enormous admiration for like deep, effective altruists too, right? There are people who are also able to take a much more um, like logic-oriented, like a Peter Singerian approach um, to, you know, if you read sort of Strangers Drowning by Larissa McFarcar, you'll meet a lot of these people. I admire anybody who's able to live out the incredibly intense demands of true ethics. But it, you know, it, I, I, I don't know. I just, I really, I, I want to emphasize what you said because I think sometimes there's this like idea about, are you right? Well, none of us are right on some level. We have no fucking idea what's going on. No, exactly. But in a deeper level, like, I've just become, as I've become a little bit older, much more interested in the question of are you good? Yeah. And yeah. the and people just how who hard get really <laughs> into Yeah, the people get really into being a jerk about being right are often, in my experience, not spending that much time being good. And I'm not even sure those two like personality traits are that well aligned with each yeah. other. 
maybe I can clarify a little bit here because sometimes people describe my book as, oh, Rutger is trying to prove that people are good in nature. And that's, that's really not what I'm saying. I think we've evolved to be friendly and to be cooperative, which is a quite different thing. And actually, sometimes our friendliness is exactly the problem, right? Um, throughout history, so many of our worst crimes have been committed in the name of friendliness and comradeship and loyalty, right? And actually, the people that we should really look up to, you know, the heroes in our history, like the real heroes, they go against the status quo. They say things that are often unfriendly and nasty and, and described as unrealistic and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So... This is sort of the paradox, I think, of, of my book, is that on the one hand, we've evolved to be friendly and to we want to be liked most of the time, but then so often that is exactly the problem. What's odd to me about the way you phrase that, or or this is where I would push on it, your book, the part of what feels really true about it to me is that what you're saying is we evolved to be social. You keep saying friendly, and I'd like to hear you defend that distinction because you have a chapter. I mean, you talk about Auschwitz. You talk about some of the great crimes of human history, and your conclusion, and you can tell me if I'm misreading this, is that people do great evil once they've been convinced by their social context that they are doing good, right? I am under no illusions that many of the people who've persecuted my people throughout history thought they were doing something noble on behalf of humanity, right? Like, and they killed my ancestors because of it. And to me, what is like the fundamental truth of humanity and to, and more than anything, like a real place, a lot of like enlightenment got wrong is that we're not individuals. We reason morally and intellectually in a very deep social context, and we will do almost anything to remain in good standing in that context. And so like, whether that makes us friendly or unfriendly depends on where you sit within the relevant social dynamic, but it's all social. Like we are just intensely social creatures. And to understand us, you have to understand that context, whereas most of the energy goes into understanding us as individuals, and I think wrongly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I use the friendly, the word friendly also because I mean, Brian Hare, an evolutionary anthropologist, uh, anthropologist he's, he's got a book coming out with the title Survival of the Friendliest, right? And the argument, you can take this literally, is that just for, for a long time, it was the friendliest among us who had the most kids and the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. So like being friendly was a real evolutionary advantage because if you had more friends, then uh, there would be more people who would help you out if there was not enough food, right? And uh, if there was a drought or something like that. So that's that's sort of think why it's justified to use use the word friendly here and not just only sort of talk about us being a social um, species. Um, and when it comes to you know the great crimes of human history, I think one of the the ironies of writing a book like this is that if you argue that you know there's a lot of good in us as well, or there's you can actually have a more hopeful view of human nature, that you have to go on for hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, about the dark chapters in our history. And I'm obviously not saying that I've sort of given a convincing <laughs> explanation of, uh, of all of this uh, or uh, said enough about it because you can write libraries full of books about it. But yeah, one really interesting theory, I think, that comes out of this new evolutionary anthropology is that there's a real connection here between on the one hand, our capacity for friendliness, and on the other hand, our, our tribal behavior. That is sort of two sides of the same coin. You've got empathy on the one hand, you've got xenophobia on the other hand, and they're not 
they're not sort of they're connected, right? They're they're really um, in a way they're almost the same phenomenon because you, if you feel a lot of empathy for your own group and for our, for your own friends, it works as a as a spotlight. This is the term of Paul Bloom, the psychologist, and he, as a searchlight, you really focus on that person or that group, and then the rest of the of the world fades sort of into darkness. And uh, that's a dynamic you see at play in, in so so often in history. And it's it's not I mean it's not a total explanation of all our, our chapters, but I think it's an important part that you often see. One of the things that is striking in the present moment has been the rise to power of people who characterologically have a very different nature. Let's say. You talk in the book about, one, how important shame is in human history and civilization, and you also talk about how shamelessness can be a weapon, right? It can be adaptive. Donald Trump, I think, being the, the ultimate example, but Boris Johnson is like this in the UK, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. These are men who, in a very deep way, have a shamelessness to them that lets them act in ways others wouldn't. Why would that be an advantage? Like, What does your theory say about the rise of, of, of these people? It's such a damning indictment of of our sort of modern civilized society that you can have this process that you could call survival of the shameless. That these shameless people, they can do things that other people just can't. It's like a superpower. They can say things, they can do things, and any other normal healthy individual would sort of die of shame, right? The kind of things that Trump has said, that Boris Johnson has said, that Bolsonaro has said, most of us just can't do it. Right, we wouldn't survive the shame, and then you realize that actually, what what sort of holds together our societies isn't so much the laws and the procedures and the constitution that was written by the founding fathers, blah blah blah. No, it's just implicit norms. It's feelings of shame, and you just realize what kind of terrible dynamic there is once actually these shameless people can rise to the top and become the most powerful person in the world. Right. I haven't fully thought it through, right? I think one one thing here obviously is is sort of the media dynamic is that it's obviously newsworthy. We know the extraordinary amount of free press that that Donald Trump got in the primaries in 2016 because everything was sort of crazy and everything's newsworthy. And so that's a real sort of advantage that those who are shameless have in our sort of uh current information system. But there are many other things about it. I mean, what do you think about it? I, I can only say that it's sort of a, it's, it's such a strange and bizarre thing that for thousands of years, we had this process that you would call survival of the friendliest. And where actually, if you want to survive, if you want to be a leader in a matter and together society, humbleness was the absolute prerequisite, right? That was absolutely essential. And now you've got the opposite. So what happened? So. I have a couple of thoughts here. One, I'm just not confident that I know the quality of leaders in hunter-gatherer society <laughs> and how many of them were were, you know, social or shameless or 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 whatnot. And I am not sure before I get into what makes now different, I'm not sure I'm confident in how different the current period is. Like if you look even just at the range of American leaders over time, how many of them had shameless dynamics to them? Probably quite a few, right? We've already talked, obviously, about some of the truly dark periods in, in human history. Hitler, I don't think, was highly constrained by a sense of shame, at least not in the way most human beings would think about it. But there are ways in which even just much more banal leaders were not constrained by as much shame. And, and to want to be a leader at that level. I mean, sometimes I think about what would it be like to be president and make the decision about going to war? 
what would it have been like to be, I mean, Lincoln, right? A deep humanist accepting those casualty counts, right? Like what, what, what is different about a person who is willing to do that and wants to do that even, that aspires to do that? So I'm not sure that I know in the sweep of human history, are we really seeing better or worse leaders now? That said, I do think the media dynamics are really important. You you offer a critique of the news media in your book that mirrors in some ways the critique of the media I offer in my book and have offered on the show, particularly around the way the outrageous is emphasized, the way newsworthiness is constructed, the way that there is a kind of constant spotlight on the worst. I've been thinking a lot recently about the ways in which Donald Trump just continues to get attention for doing things that are crazy and gets very little attention for doing anything that is normal. And like, what if it were reversed, right? Like the, this is not a conversation my friends in the media like to have, but it's like, what if we, it seems crazy, this idea because of what we are cultured into in the media, that we would only give Donald Trump the oxygen of media attention when he acted like a president and was doing real things that mattered as opposed to saying dumb things that like are offensive or are dangerous. But those dangerous things, he says, are much more dangerous because they get so amplified. So I'm not it's not obvious to me in any way that we're making the situation better. And on the other hand, it's not like I think we should hide or ignore that he said, you know, maybe we should check out injecting bleach as an as an option here. Um it's a very hard problem, but I think it is built on on the technological structure that we are currently communicating on, and I worry it's going to get worse. I mean, when I look at Twitter, and people who listen to the show are always like, "Why don't you just get off?" To-? Like, I look at it because I think it is the single most influential political communications platform, whether or not I am on it. And I think Twitter incentivizes for shamelessness. I think the people who really rise up there have to be willing and comfortable with a level of constant conflict. The difference between a really good tweet and a really bad one is extremely narrow. It's why people who are good at Twitter get in trouble every 10 days. Because like what it's asking for you is in some ways like, and so you have to be just willing to have those public backlashes constantly, which some people are, but I don't think the kind of personality that thrives on that sort of conflict is a kind of personality that I want dominating the public discourse. But that's what our our communications mediums are pushing towards. And by the way, cable news has some of those same dynamics. I mean, other things do too. But like it, it's a to me, it's a it's a real issue. And the more mature and dominant these structures get, the more powerful they'll become. Yeah. You know, one of the ironies when I look at sort of my own relatively short career and look at the moments that have been the most important if only in terms of how many books they sold me. These are also the moments that I'm maybe not the proudest of. You know, I had this uh, row with Tucker Carlson for Fox News uh, on his show, where well, he basically, he went nuts a little bit. I, I criticized him uh, in a, I think, quite direct way about, you know, him being a millionaire paid by billionaires, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you look at Beck, um, I don't come across as quite friendly and maybe also not, very honest. It's not the moment that I'm most sort of the proudest of, even though I, I can't say I've totally regretted. And I think he, said he re- revealed a lot about himself in that moment. But, you know, this has made me way more famous you know, than I was before that, right? That sort of the, the three se- seconds of, of fame. Because at that moment, I was exactly the kind of person that sort of you just described, sort of I had a certain shamelessness or confidence 
that gives you all these retweets and all these likes, right? And gets you all these high fives from from people who are, your, are on your side of of, uh, of the political spectrum. Yeah, I think there's a there's a real <laughs> a real irony there. Even though, as I said, I mean, at the same at the same time. I also think that a lot of progress comes from people who are sort of willing to be unfriendly and go against the, the status quo and say uh, sort of nasty or difficult things. But yeah, sort of the person that you were just describing there, I was like, hmm, yeah, maybe I've been that a couple of times. But but we've all been that, right? I mean, not we've all, but but you look, like it's not <laughs> you haven't, Ezra. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I've definitely had my moments, my moments of controversy too, and. Um, how does that work actually for you? Because actually you strike me as a very, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and you are this incredibly nuanced guy who looks at things from so many different perspectives and, and has a discussions with a lot of people, you know, from, from different, different, different sides of the political eye, uh, spectrum. But then a lot of people do actually watch your show, right? And you do have a, uh, or listen to your show and you do have a huge amount of influence. So that kind of nuance does seem to work there, right? So there's a big market for it. I don't think the market is bad, and I don't think it's particularly bad. I don't think the market for attention is always bad, and particularly not in podcasts. Um, and by the way, throughout the media, there I mean, the New York Times is the biggest media institution in terms of influence and prestige on the planet, and it's an extraordinary institution. Like, I give cable news some shit, but like Chris Hayes over there is one of the journalists I respect the most. He's a, a somebody I really admire, and he's been a friend for a long time. And there are like excellent people working all these. So like when I talk about the trends in this, I don't want that discussion to become totalizing. That said, I'm a, you know, I wrote a book called Why We're Polarizing and like lots of people are like, haha, it's you. And if all you know of me is like three clips you saw on YouTube from people who didn't like me, right? I've sort of, I have my moments that either can be pulled out of context or I have my moments that just weren't great. Uh, and you know, like I try to, I try to keep things on a pretty even keel, but even that pisses a lot of people off, right? There's like a, a view that I'm this sort of <laughs> like robotically, um, temperamentally calm something or other. And like that pisses a lot of people on the yeah. left. So I don't know. Like I'm angrier. very, I am, uh, yeah, I'm very polarizing myself, right? And I do not want to be, but uh, it is what it is. And, you know, there, there's a, there's a tension in all of that. But that actually gets to something here that, I think is important, which is this is a book about human nature and ideas of humanity. At the beginning of our conversation, I described you as somebody who thinks of sort of techno-social democratic utopias. And I do want to talk for a little bit about to what degree is the question here technological? I heard an interview with a technologist named Vinay Gupta, and he had this interesting line where he said that you know, he's a critic of capitalism, and he said, like, I used to think the like you would solve capitalism through some other social order, but I've come to think that you're going to solve it technologically. That the problem, that the problem, no matter, no matter what your economic order is right now, is that it's extractive on the resources end and exploitative on the labor end. And that's true no matter whether you're a communist or a capitalist. And what we need to do is invent things that don't have that capacity. So you're able to have a, an underlying technology of abundance. I'm somebody who believes very deeply that a lot of conversations about human nature and, and media and other things end up being flawed because they miss the technological dimension shaping us, right? That we are very shaped and co-created by the technologies we use. And I wonder how much of the question that is like lurking behind your book and certainly behind the, the previous one is, are we going to invent the technologies and harness them 
such that we can have this version of humankind or not. Like, I think progressives have kind of lost a theory of technology. But when I think of everything that is important to me as a progressive, technology is deeply implicated in almost all of it, from climate change to animal suffering to inequality to labor rights. Like, the better we are able to do to invent things to make being a moral and kind human being easy, the more people will do it. Yeah. Okay. So, a couple of things. Most of the things that I'm arguing for, sort of the kind of institutions that I'm sort of talking about, we could have had them like 50 years ago, right? The kind of schools, and, and in some in some ways they already exist 50 years ago, or the kind of democracy, deliberative democracy, or uh, the kind of workplace. You don't you don't need additional innovations for that. Uh, actually, as for example, in healthcare, I think that often all these innovations from so-called disruptive people who talk about give keynotes about. I don't know, new algorithms or whatever we need. Uh, I think that misses the point. If you think about healthcare, well, healthcare in the 1980s was relatively similar to what we need right now in many ways. If you if you are a nurse, right? You're try just trying to take care of someone who's in a really difficult situation. And yeah, that takes a lot of time and attention and love. And that hasn't really fundamentally changed in 30 to 40 years. But when we talk about other things, like sort of the technology that we need to solve the great challenges of the future, and particularly climate change. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we need to take a huge leap here. And I guess this is what I'm worried about the most, is that my theory of political change sort of takes time, right? I believe that it takes like a generation or something like that. Just like neoliberalism, it took, it took a generation, it took 30 to 40 years to take over the West. And I think there are really strong signs that we are entering a new era with you know very different kind of thinking you had mariana matsukato on the podcast the economist who believes you know in the power of the state and that most fundamental innovations are are actually funded by the state as, as well i think she's one just one example of a sort of a whole new generation of thinkers that are also having a, like a real influence on the policy level but the question is just do we have the time right when, especially when you look at climate change, it's you can't say, oh, don't worry about it. It's like 20, 30 years. If you look at the kids who are young right now, you know, they have a very different view than the the people who, the young in the 1980s, you know, who were all fans of Ronald Reagan. Um, it's a very different time. Yeah, it's we don't have the time. So that I guess that's what I'm worried about the most, that sort of my political, <laughs> yeah, my theory of how change works, it presupposes that you that you have the time. But then you look at the statistics of like, I don't know, or the, or the science behind climate change and you realize, well, actually, we need to start mobilizing right now and very, very quickly and do things that are, you know, unimaginable uh, most of the time, you know, when there's not a war or anything like that. Yeah, that that is a very, I think, tricky question. I've actually heard you say, though, that you're critical and your antenna goes up when you read the sort of climate change rhetoric that says we're running out of time, this is unsolvable if we don't do it super quickly. Um, so uh, th th there's a suspicion you have towards that, that, uh, that, that, that there's something being lost in. I'm curious to hear you talk through that tension. I'm suspicious about the cynicism of certain environmental activists, right? So in the book, I tell the story of Easter Island. And Easter Island is often seen as a metaphor for our future, because here you have this island in the middle of the Pacific, very remote. And people lived there for centuries and they started building these crazy statues, you know, these fascinating statues that, you know, most, most people will have seen once or twice. Um, 
And in order to build those statues, they had to cut down the trees and they started cutting down more and more trees. And so at one point there were no trees left on the island. And then you had soil erosion. They couldn't get food anymore. They couldn't make agriculture work anymore. And so they started dying. They started fighting. There was a civil war. They became cannibals. So when the first uh, European explorers arrived at Easter Island, they found a civilization that had basically sort of committed suicide that was that was dying. And so often this story has been told as a metaphor for our future that look we're basically doing the same thing but then on a planetary scale uh, jared diamond i think really made made this this narrative famous and i tell the story in the book again because i took a new look at the latest evidence we have from the archaeology of east island and the anthropology and you know what historians have found and actually it's pretty much the opposite what you find is a story of resilience of of uh, you know, people who encountered real problems. Yes, the trees were gone, so they had to find new ways of uh, uh, sustaining themselves. But they managed to, right? They found they invented new agricultural techniques, for example, and so actually the food production went up. And indeed, if you read the first sort of accounts we have from explorers who arrived there, the first one was actually a Dutch man named Jacob Rogeveen, and. Um, yeah, he writes that he encounters a relatively uh, healthy uh, people who are happy to give them all kinds of presents. So the real story of Easter Island is a story of hope and of resilience. Now, I'm obviously not saying that, I mean, this is sort of kind of scientific proof that we'll manage again this time because, I mean, everything is different right now. But I do think that we often tend to underestimate our own resilience. And maybe even more importantly is that if we tell these kind of cynical stories, well, cynicism can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, <laughs> as we talked about. So we need different stories because human beings, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, I guess that's that's why some people would say that I that my book is a bit irrational in talking about so many of these stories. I also have, have for example, I've got a whole chapter on Lord of the Flies. And then I tried to debunk this novel. I mean, if you can debunk a novel anyway, by, you know, giving an example of uh, real kids who actually did really shipwreck on, a, on an island in uh, 1965, survived uh, for 50 months and are friends, still friends up until this day. Now, obviously, this is not a scientific experiment, but it is a, a really important story that we have to tell each other. Because if, if we teach or if we let millions of kids around the globe read the fictional Lord of the Flies, then maybe they deserve to know about the real Lord of the Flies as well. Um, because, yeah, we're, in so many ways, we are shaped by these stories that we tell ourselves. And that's, I guess, one, one frustration I sometimes have with, with people who rightly really worry about climate change is that they're not really good at telling stories that will inspire us for action. I think that is a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always end on, which is what are three books you would recommend? Okay, so I already mentioned one of them, you know, Affluence Without Abundance by James Sussman. Terrific book. Now, we haven't even talked about this, but a big part of my book is about all these social psychology experiments from the 60s, right? The Milgram experiments, the Stanford Prison experiment, the Robert's Cave experiment, which are all, I think, sort of versions of veneer theory that, look, here you have these, sort of healthy students who come into a fake prison and very quickly, in just a couple of days, they become these sadistic monsters. Now, most of these experiences have been thoroughly debunked in the past couple of years. And one really important researcher here has been uh, the Australian psychologist Gina Perry. So she's written two books that I really recommend, uh, Behind the Shock Machine, about the, the Milgram experiments, and The Lost Boys, 
which is about the Robert's Cave experiment. I think you talked about that one on the podcast as well. That has now been, well, pretty thoroughly debunked. Now, the last book that I, and this is like the most important recommendation because I, I just love this book, uh, is by Lee Allen Dugatkin and Lutmula Trut. I pronounce it probably totally the wrong way. It's a Russian name. The book is called How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog. And it's just a totally fascinating story of the, you know, the scientists who first came up with this theory that maybe human beings have evolved to be friendly or sort of the scientific term is self-domestication, that we've domesticated ourselves. Well, and it's a story that, you know, takes place in the 50s and the 60s of Russia when they were doing this path-breaking research when it was actually illegal. You know, you could get killed if you were doing research into genetics because they thought that genetics was this kind of fascist theory. Anyway, it's just a, it's just a fantastic book. I'm not going to give any more spoilers. How to Tame a Fox and Build a Dog. Rucker Bergman, your book is called Humankind. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. That is the show. Thank you to Rutger Bregman for being here. Thank you to all of you. Uh, thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. 